I have always been a big fan of wristbands, okay? So whatever wristband I happen to be wearing at the time reminds me of some cause that is near and dear to my heart. So uh, right now, these days, I'm wearing this black wristband, and it's got white letters on it that say IMN. Now, my guess is that most of you who are listening, either at a campus or, or online, you have no idea what IMN means. Well, I got my wristband from an organization called Voice of the Martyrs. Voice of the Martyrs supports persecuted Christ followers around the world. And in some countries where ISIS is operating, uh, these violent Muslim extremists, they'll come into a village and they'll identify Christ followers by painting a great big red N on the door of your house or the door of your business. Uh, N stands for Nazarene. Jesus, of course, was from the town of Nazareth. It means you're, you're a Christ follower. So this wristband reminds me to pray for persecuted brothers and sisters who are identified by this N. And it reminds me that this is my identity too. I am N. I'm a follower of Jesus of Nazareth. Well, today we're beginning a six-part series in the Old Testament book of Leviticus. And in today's scripture text... We're going to look at a variety of Old Testament rituals that identified people as belonging to the one true God. Now, they, they didn't wear wristbands, but they did do some pretty strange things to identify themselves as God's people. Things that are hard for us to understand more than 3,000 years later. But I'm hoping, if you understood my explanation of my IMN wristband... I'm hoping I'll be able to explain to you some of these Old Testament rituals in a way that you'll be able to understand. Now, you may be wondering, why do a series on the Old Testament book of Leviticus? If it's so archaic, so difficult to get our minds wrapped around, why not just go to a New Testament book that's more straightforward? Two reasons we're doing this series in Leviticus. Reason number one, because it's in God's Word. Okay, and the Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, he says, all scripture is God-breathed, and so it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training us in righteousness. You hear what Paul's saying? All scripture comes from God, and all scripture, therefore, is useful for our lives. And you're going to see before the day's out, before the sermon's done today, that there are some practical applications for our lives today from the passage of Leviticus we're looking at. Second reason we've chosen to do a series on Leviticus, we want to encourage you to become a daily Bible reader. Now, we have put together a four-year Bible reading plan. You can read through the entire Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, in four years by covering just a little bit every day. And, and then we've also added... A, uh, a journal, the Bible Savvy Journal. We designed this journal so you could record your insights and the applications you get from your daily Bible reading. We, we actually have a Bible Savvy Journal for kids as well called Epic. And so if you've got grade school kids, we've got a bi Bible Savvy Journal for them. And if you'll drop your kids off with us midweek at either our DeKalb or St. Charles campus, we have a children's program called Epic. And what we do is we reinforce the portions of the Bible that they, they've been reading at home during the week. So we, we want to make Bible readers out of you. By the way, we update this Bible Savvy Journal, we update it every four months with a new portion of the reading schedule. So, so, so pick one up. 
Several times a year, what we're going to do is we're, we're going to drop into wherever we're at in the schedule, whatever book we're in, we're going to do a four to six week series on it. So currently the schedule has us in the book of Leviticus, so that's why we're doing this Leviticus series. Now, I, I have to admit, we intentionally did this Bible Savvy series to coincide with the Leviticus reading because we knew Leviticus is a little harder to read and understand and apply to our lives. We just want to do everything we can to help you become a regular Bible reader. So if you're already following the Bible Savvy schedule, great, keep it up. If you've not started yet, pick up a Bible Savvy journal today. Get going, jump into the middle of Le Leviticus with us. If you started at some point in the past and then you, you kind of gave up on Bible reading, which all of us have done about 200 times, all right? So get started again today. So this is what we're all about. I want you to turn with me to Leviticus chapter 11. Easy book in the Bible to find. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. It's the third book in. And the Bible Savvy reading schedule has already covered chapters 1 through 10, so we're picking it up at chapter 11. You're going to read this week, if you're following the schedule, you're going to read chapters 11 through 15. You're also going to read, by the way, a little bit of Matthew. So every other week, we, we give you something simpler to read, if you would. Now, I want to begin by giving you a key word for the book of Leviticus. Okay, the word is holy. Say holy. holy. Holy, okay? You will find the word holy or holiness or sanctify, which means to make holy. You'll find these words 152 times in the book of Leviticus, more than in any other book of the Bible. So today we want to discover what is meant by holiness and why is it so important to our lives. So if you haven't taken the outline from your program yet, take it out and fill it in as we go. Here's point number one. It has to do with the requirement of holiness. The requirement of holiness. Now, we teach a four-step Bible study method at Christ Community called COMA, C-O-M-A. So the C stands for context, right. So whenever you pick up a passage of the Bible, you're going to start reading, you're, you're going to understand it much better if you know something about the historical background, the context of that passage. So let me give you some context for the book of Leviticus. Okay, it's written by a guy named Moses. You've probably heard of him. He's writing about 1400 to 1450 BC. He writes five Old Testament books, the first five books, which are called the Pentateuch. And you probably know that penta means Five, right? So he writes Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Moses is the hero who delivered God's people from over 400 years of slavery in Egypt, and he leads them to the promised land, the land of Canaan, which becomes their home country. But along the way, and by the way, it's a long trip. It's a 40-year trip, and yeah, this is a whole other story in terms of why it takes him that long. But in the middle of the trip, they stop at a place called Mount Sinai. Moses climbs up to the top of Mount Sinai. He meets with God, and when he comes down, he comes down with God's laws, God's commandments for daily living. Okay, the entire book of Leviticus takes place at Mount Sinai. And not surprisingly, Leviticus is filled with these Old Testament commandments. 
In fact, Bible scholars estimate that there are 613 commandments in the Old Testament, and 247 of them appear in the book of Leviticus. So 40% of the Old Testament commandments you're going to find in the book of Leviticus. Now, there are three kinds of laws or, or commandments. And I'm, I'm sorry if you, know, you feel like you're drinking from a, from a fire hose at this point, but this is really important stuff to understand so you know which laws, which commandments are for us today and which ones are not for us any longer. Three kinds of, of commandments or laws, moral, civil, and ceremonial. Now, moral laws are laws that, that are for all people at all times. Okay, universally applicable. They're, they're laws that have to do with stuff like honesty and sexual purity and, and protecting human life. Okay, civil laws were to help the leaders of Israel govern that nation in ancient times. So in one sense, they're not directly applicable to our lives today because we don't live in ancient Israel. Right? But in another sense, some of these laws are indirectly applicable. I'll give you an example. One of the civil laws says that when you're harvesting your crops, you should leave some of what you reap on the ground so poor people can come along and pick it up and eat it. Okay? So most of you probably don't harvest crops, right? But there is an indirect application of this civil law. What's the indirect application? Yeah, you ought to care for poor people. Make sure that poor people get fed, right? So moral laws, civil laws, third category of Old Testament laws is ceremonial laws, sometimes called religious laws. And they described how sinful people, messed up people, could approach a perfectly holy God. These are laws about priests and laws about sacrifices and laws about special days of celebration and laws about the tabernacle. The tabernacle was the worship center for Israel before the permanent temple was built. Now a quick aside about the tabernacle, because a lot of the ceremonial laws had to do with what happened in the tabernacle. Okay, the tabernacle is referred to again and again in the book of Leviticus as the tent of meeting. The tent of meeting, because that's where you go if you want to meet with God. Problem, how do sinful people meet a holy God? Okay, that's like mixing oil and water. They, they, they don't go together. In, in fact, let me give you some background to this problem. Okay, all the way back at the beginning of time, God creates a human couple, Adam and Eve, and he places them in a virtual paradise called the Garden of, Garden of Eden. Okay, and there they enjoy amazing fellowship with God, an unrestricted relationship with God. Couldn't be better until, and you probably know this story, until Adam and Eve decide to flagrantly disobey God. They decide to do something God had explicitly said don't do. Okay, God had told them you can eat from any tree in this garden except that one, and that's the one they chose to eat from. Okay, flagrant disobedience. And so Adam and Eve introduced sin into the world, and people like you and me, we've been sinning ever since. Okay, on a regular, daily basis, we do things that God says don't do, and we fail to do the things God says we should do. And as a result of that, our relationship with God is destroyed. Now, in the case of Adam and Eve, they were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, this place that was the picture of of perfect fellowship with God. 
Well, friends, God was brokenhearted over the disruption of this relationship with people. God wanted fellowship with humanity, so he set out to fix the problem. In fact, the story of the Bible is really how God fixes the problem. How God reconciles sinful people to himself. How God brings them back, as it were, into Eden, into a healthy, vibrant relationship with himself. Now, some of you are thinking at this point, what does this have to do with Leviticus? I mean, a moment ago you're talking about the tabernacle, and now you're off on this tangent, and you're talking about Adam and Eve. Here's the connection. Okay, the, the, the tabernacle was God's initiative to reconnect with people. So in 1400 B.C., Moses and the Israelites are living in tents in the wilderness. So guess where God comes to live? He comes to live right in their midst in a tent. That's what the tabernacle was. It was a great big tent. However, we still have a problem. You know, the problem is still sin. How do sinful people approach a holy God? And to illustrate the, the problem, let me give you an, an analogy here. Picture God as a bright sun. Okay, now we love the sun, don't we? Especially if you live in Chicago and you're in the middle of winter. Right? You love to see the sun because the sun brings warmth and the sun brings growth to things and the sun brings light and joy into our lives. But there's a dangerous side to the sun, is there not? I mean, what, what happens if you get in your little rocket ship and you head toward the sun and you get too close? You explode, right? In fact, if you've been reading the Bible-savvy reading schedule this last week, you read up through Leviticus 10. Do you recall what happened in Leviticus 10? Moses has got two nephews by the name of Nadab and Abihu, a couple of knuckleheads. But they had been chosen to serve as priests in the, in the tabernacle, but they didn't take their job seriously. You know, they were, they were in there like a couple of frat boys goofing off. And so fire from the presence of God consumes them. God has a way of making a point. God is not to be taken lightly. He's not to be taken. So here we have the tabernacle. On the one hand, it's a statement of God's desire for fellowship with people. I mean, he's come to live among us. But, but on the other hand, it's obvious that you just can't waltz into God's presence any way you please without getting zapped. So some rules had to be put in place. Rules that would get people ready for approaching this awesome, this holy God. Rules that I've been referring to as the ceremonial laws. Moral laws, civil laws, the ceremonial laws. Ceremonial laws make people holy so they can enter the presence of a holy God. Now it's, it's time I give you a definition for holy, okay? The word holy means simply set apart. Now, now we speak of God as being holy for a couple of reasons. Reason number one, he's set apart from sin. Okay, God is totally righteous. God is absolutely perfect. There is no trace of sin in God. He's holy. But, but set apart also means that God is set apart from all creation. There is nobody like him in the universe. God is the source of all being. God made everything else. He knows everything. He can do everything. He's set apart from all creation. That's why we say God is holy. Now, in order to have a relationship with a holy God, we've got to be holy. 
two senses in which we got to be holy. We got to be set apart from sin. And second, we got to be set apart from everybody else in terms of our, our devotion to the one true God. So if you're living in Moses' day and you want to approach God, God's presence at the tabernacle, you got to be holy. You got to be set apart from sin. Got to be set apart from all other people by your devotion to God. So, so there are ceremonial laws. The first eight chapters of Leviticus have to do with animal sacrifices that will set you apart from sin. See, these animal sacrifices take the punishment that your sin deserves. The, the ceremonial laws that we're looking at today, the rituals we're looking at today, have to do with setting you apart from all other people in your devotion to God. They're like, remember my opening analogy, the wristband? They're, they're like wristbands. They're, they're ID markers, if you would. The requirement of holiness. I hope you've been following this so far. Let me try to summarize this first point. Okay, we, we've been considering the requirement of holiness. Our sin banishes us from a relationship with God, just as Adam and Eve were banished from the Garden of Eden. But God deeply desires our fellowship, and so he's willing to extend a relationship to us if we're willing to be made holy, if we're willing to be set apart from sin and set apart from everybody else in terms of our devotion, our commitment to God. You get it? Good, then let's move on. Number two. Now we're going to start talking about the symbols, the symbols of this holiness. We're going to do a quick flyby of Five chapters in Leviticus that you'll be reading this week, Leviticus 11 through 15. And these chapters cover four categories of rituals that God's Old Testament people were to practice if they wanted to communicate their desire for holiness. Okay, four kinds of rituals that were symbols. What, what these symbols said were, I'm set apart. I'm set apart from all other people in my devotion to the one true God. Now, before I read the opening verses of Le Leviticus 11 to you, let, let me remind you of our four-step Bible study method. Okay, COMA, C-O-M-A. C stands for context. We already looked at the historical context of Leviticus. O stands for observations. As you're reading through any text, there, there are basically three or four things to be looking for, three or four things to observe. If you'll observe these, they'll help you get something out of your Bible reading. Now, one of the things to observe are repeating words or ideas. Okay, if you're reading a passage and the same word or the same idea keeps popping up again and again, God's making a point. So let me read to you just the opening eight verses of Leviticus 11, and I'm going to put an emphasis on certain words. Now, there are half a dozen repeating words in this passage, but I'm going to put an emphasis on a few special ones. Follow along as I read Leviticus 11, beginning at verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Say to the Israelites of all the animals that live on land, these are the ones you may eat. You may eat any animal that has a divided hoof and that chews the cud. Now, there are, there are some that only chew the cud or only have a divided hoof, but you must not eat them. The camel, though it chews the cud, does not have a divided hoof. It's ceremonially unclean for you. The hyrax, though it chews the cud, does not have a divided hoof. It is unclean for you. The rabbit, though it chews the cud, does not have a divided hoof. It is 
unclean for you. And the pig, though it has a divided hoof, does not chew the cud. It is unclean for you. You must not eat their meat or touch their carcasses. They are unclean for you. Stop there. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, God, and please help us understand this. <laughs> okay. So what's being described here is diet. Okay, this is, this is the first symbolic set of rituals that point to the fact that I'm holy. I'm set apart from everybody else in my devotion to the one true God. Now, now the, the chapter I read, it goes on and on the same way about clean and unclean for 47 verses. You know, certain animals are clean and so they can be eaten. Other animals are unclean so they may not be eaten. Did you see those repeating words as you read it? So what's the difference between the clean and the unclean? Bible scholars have argued this for centuries, and there are basically four explanations that are offered. One explanation, explanation number one. Some people say, say it has to do with health. So the unclean animals are the ones that are unhealthy to eat, so God's, you know, this is hygienic. God says stay away from them. Others say, explanation number two, that the unclean animals had to do with pagan religions. They were animals that were used in pagan rituals, so stay away from them. Others said that the unclean animals were ones that had unnatural behaviors, like sea critters that didn't have fins with which to swim, or birds that they had feathers, they had wings, but they didn't fly. Stay away from these unnatural ones. Now, the trouble with the first three explanations is that if you go through the list of animals, all the animals don't neatly fit into these categories. There are exceptions, which is why I like explanation number four. Explanation number four is there is no explanation. Okay, so, so what, what do I mean by that? What, what I mean is that you know, God chose to call some animals clean, some animals unclean for, for, for the primary purpose of giving his people a symbolic reminder. See, every time they sat down to a meal and had to be aware of, can I eat this or can I not eat this, there was a reminder that God wants me to be holy. God wants me to be set apart from sin. God wants me to be set apart from all other people in my devotion, my dedication, my commitment to him. Okay, second category of rituals that were intended to be symbols of holiness. And we're going to drop down to chapter 12, Leviticus 12, which is the shortest chapter in Leviticus. Uh, my Bible has a heading at the beginning of chapter 12, and by the way, that's another observation to make as you're reading a passage. Look for the headings, because the headings will give away the theme of what you're about to read. So in my Bible, above chapter 12, it says, purification after childbirth. You see that? Okay, so when a woman gave birth to a child in ancient Israel, she was considered unclean for a period of time, and she had to be made clean. Now, now, please understand, this is not a moral law. Giving birth to a child didn't mean she'd done something wrong she had to get cleaned up for. This is a ceremonial law. It points to holiness. How does it point to holiness? Well, as some Bible scholars say it's because as a woman gives birth to a child, there's a certain amount of blood and body fluids that leak out of her that represent death. And so before she comes into the presence of a holy God who is the source of all life, 
She needs to, to purge herself from any traces of death. Makes sense. Makes sense. Third category of rituals that were intended to be symbols of holiness. I want you to drop down uh, again to Leviticus 13. What does the heading of Leviticus 13 say? Okay, in my Bible, it says relations about defiling skin diseases. Now, if the chapter title here sounds gross to you, it's because everything in this chapter is gross. Okay, and they're basically, I'm not going to go into it in detail. You're going to have to read it on your own. It's great stuff if you're a middle schooler, by the way. Okay. There are basically three kinds of skin diseases described in chapters 13 and 14. First, there are bodily skin diseases. There, there are 24 bodily skin diseases listed in Leviticus 13. It's like a catalog of dermatology, okay? Second category of skin disease has to do with the skin, as it were, we're using the word metaphorically, of clothing, mold and mildew that could get into the fabric or get into the leather of clothing. Third kind of skin disease, again using the word metaphorically, had to do with houses, had to do with mold that would get into your house and destroy the building materials. So what do all these skin disease laws symbolize? Well, friends, they're all pictures of how sin seeps into our lives and slowly destroys us. You know, sin makes it impossible for, for a, a relationship to be had with a holy God. And so all, all of the skin diseases described in Leviticus 13 and, and 14 had to be cleaned up. They had to be cleaned up before a person could approach God at the tabernacle. And, and in the case of incurable skin diseases, if a person had a skin disease that, that just didn't get better, then they were banished outside the camp of the Israelites. Now, it's important to remember this was, this was for reasons of hygiene, because back in that day, there, there were no medical cures. So the only way you could keep a contagious disease from spreading was to isolate it. The person had to live outside the camp. But theologically, what did this, what did this say? It was a picture of the fact that this person separated from the camp, separated from the tabernacle that represented the presence of God, was cut off from a relationship with God. Just like sin cuts us off from a relationship with God. Wow. Well, so far we've looked at ceremonial laws that have to do with diet, childbirth, skin disease, you know, all as symbols of holiness. I, I want to look at a fourth category of rituals that Leviticus covers, and this is in chapter 15. Now, again, if I look at the title, the heading over chapter 15 in my Bible, it says, Discharges Causing Uncleanness. If you read it, it's all about sexually related discharges. Sexually related discharges. Leviticus 15 is rated PG-13, all right? There are four kinds of sexually related discharges, two of them normal, two of them abnormal, not going to go into them. But in what way do these point to holiness? God's demand for holiness in our lives. Two explanations offered by Bible scholars. Some say, well, it's just a reminder that uh, you know, a lot of sin is related to sex. Now, on the, on the one hand, sex is a totally good thing. God made us as sexual beings. S sexuality is a gift from him. 
However, in the Bible, there are many sexual behaviors that we're warned against. We're warned against lust. We're warned against adultery. We're warned against homosexual behaviors. We're warned against sleeping with somebody you're not married to. And so these sexually related discharges are reminders as you get cleaned up from them. You've got to stay away from sexual sin in total. If you, want, if you want a relationship with a holy God. Other Bible scholars say, well, you know, it has something, something more to do with other religions. See, a lot of other religions, pagan religions at the time, had fertility rites and temple prostitution and worship orgies going on. And so these sexually related discharges getting cleaned up from them reminded you, stay away from pagan religions. Be devoted, be dedicated, be committed to the one true God. Be committed to the one true God. So you got the symbols of holiness. You got diet, childbirth, skin diseases, sexually related discharges. When you stop to think about it, these, these ceremonial laws were comprehensive. I mean, they covered every area of life. Which meant that every time a person sat down to eat a meal, every time a person gave birth to a baby, every time somebody caught an infection, every time you were going through the clothes in your clothes closet, every time you had sex, you were reminded that God wants you to be holy. God wants you to be holy. That's what these laws were reminders of. And if people weren't holy then they had no access to the God who resided at the tabernacle. See, a relationship with a holy God is off limits to unholy people. You know, one final note about these ceremonial laws that symbolized holiness. As you read through Leviticus 11 through 15 this week, you're going to notice lots of instructions that I've skipped over today about how a person gets cleaned up. Okay, if you've been messed up by eating the wrong diet or by childbirth or by skin disease or, or by sexually related discharges, how do you get cleaned up? So some of the processes had to do with offering sacrifices. Some of them had to do with going to a priest who would perform some special ritual. Some of it had to do with engaging in a ritual bath. In fact, if you go to Israel today and you approach the Temple Mount from the south, okay, there's this land platform on which the temple used to sit. Archaeologists have uncovered all these ritual baths. Okay, square holes cut in the ground in the rock that used to be filled with water. And before a person could enter the temple, they had to make sure that they had washed away all impurities that they were clean, that they were holy. See, when it comes to a holy God, you come clean or you don't come at all. You come clean or you don't come. Now that brings us to the third point. This is where the rubber meets the road, okay? We're going to talk, number three, about the experience of holiness. How do you experience holiness then? Back to our four-step method of Bible study. Coma, C-O-M-A. C stands for context. We've looked at that. O stands for observations. We've made many observations about the rituals in Leviticus 11 through 15. The M of coma stands for message. So what is the message in whatever passage we're reading for our lives today? And then the A is application. How am I going to put that message into practice? 
Okay, how am I going to put the message into practice? So let's begin with message. What is the message of what we've been looking at today? Pretty obvious. God wants us to be holy. God wants us to be holy. In fact, the key verses of Leviticus are found in chapter 11, which you'll read this week. Verses 44 and 45, God says, I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves and be holy because I'm holy. I am the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, be holy because I am holy. Now, if this sounds to you like a message strictly for people of ancient Israel, you know, recorded in the Old Testament book of Leviticus, but let me just point out that this same command is repeated in the New Testament for anybody who wants to be a follower of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and 16 say, Just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do, for it's written, Be holy because I'm holy. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, it says it a little more sternly. It's a warning. It says, Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Friends, listen to this. Without, if there's not holiness in your life, you don't get a relationship with a holy God. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. God wants us to be holy. He wants us to be set apart from sin, and He wants us to be set apart from all other people in terms of our soul devotion to Him, our dedication, our commitment to Him. Well, that's the message. That's the M of coma. In the text today, what's the A? The application. Let me offer you two applications of this message. Application number one, ask Jesus to make you holy. Ask Jesus to make you holy. Now, friends, Jesus does this in a couple of ways. First, Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice who pays the penalty for our sins. See, all of the animal sacrifices in the Old Testament, they pointed to the day when Jesus would come to earth, the eternal Son of God who would lay down his life on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. And because Jesus, the eternal Son of God, because his life was of infinite worth, his sacrifice can be applied to anyone who surrenders their life to him. So the question is, have you ever done that? Have you ever surrendered to Christ? Have you ever come humbly to him and said, only you can make me holy? Only you, in the, in the words of the song we sang earlier in worship, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Friends, what can wash away your sin, my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So you ask Jesus, please make me holy. Now there's a second sense in which Jesus makes us holy. Once you've surrendered your life to him, Jesus comes to live in you by his spirit. Okay, he offers you a, a sort of a signing bonus, if you would. The Holy Spirit comes to live inside, and his big deal is he wants to make you, practically speaking, holy in your daily life. You know, he wants to incline you to say no to sin and to say yes to obedience to God. So on a daily basis, you're saying, oh, Jesus, by your spirit, make me holy. You know, make me a person who, who more and more says no to that sinful behavior and yes to you, to obedience to God. 
You know, if that's not going on in your life on a daily basis, if you don't find that inclination to say no to sin and say yes to God, it could be because the Holy Spirit hasn't taken up residence in your life yet because you've never surrendered to Jesus. Once you surrender to Jesus, you'll sense the, the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. So ask Jesus to make you holy. Here's my second application. Display symbols of holiness. Display symbols. Now, think about all the rituals that we looked at today in Leviticus 11 to 15. They, they, they were all intended to identify those who belonged to the one true God. They were, they were like wristbands. You know, the, these rituals set apart the Israelites from all other people. They symbolically communicated, we are totally committed. We're passionately devoted to God. So how can we say that today? What can we do that says God means everything to me? I am a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. So we say it by putting a, a fish bumper sticker on our, our car, or by wearing a cross necklace, or by tattooing a Bible verse on our arm. Now you may say, well, well, how about by living an exemplary life, living a good moral life? Well, that's fine, but the laws that we looked at today were not moral laws. They, were, they weren't about right and wrong. They, they were rituals, symbols that said, I'm devoted to the one true God. So what can we do today that says, God means everything to me? So I was thinking about that this last week, and I'm going to throw out a couple ideas, and we're going to wrap up, and we're going to move into communion. I just want to prime the pump. Okay? How can you say that in the way you do business this week, in the way you approach your job? in a way that sets you apart from all other people and makes a statement that this is the way I operate differently from others because I'm devoted to the one true God. I'm not saying you do this in a self-righteous sort of way. But when you, when you go to school this week, what symbols would tell your, your friends at school, Jesus is number one in my life? You know, maybe, maybe it's the Bible you carry in your backpack and you read during study hall. Maybe it's bowing your head for lunch in the cafeteria. I, you know, what other ways would tell your friends, I'm devoted to Christ? You know, I, I think every time you get in your car and you drive to Christ Community Church on a weekend, when most other people around you in your neighborhood, in your community, if they're getting in their car, it's to go play a round of golf or to go shopping or to drive their kids to yet another sporting event. And you're saying, no, here's what I do every weekend. I'm devoted to carving out time to worship God. That makes a statement. I think every time we sit down with a checkbook and we write out a check to the Lord's work, when we know how most people spend their disposable income, you know, on houses and cars and blue jeans and electronic toys, and, and you're saying, no, portion of my income goes to the Lord's work because I'm devoted to him. I have a friend who told me, uh, you know, he, he was going to a tax preparer, the same person year after year. This person was a self-professed atheist, but over time looked at all the money he was giving away on an annual basis and said, what gives? Which gave him an opportunity to say, well, I'm a follower of Jesus who wants me to be generous, which eventually led that tax preparer to a relationship with Christ. Said, Making a statement. What'll it be for you? Well, here's, here's what we're going to do. Uh, I'm going to say a quick prayer, then I'm going to ask our campus pastors to come out and lead us in a time of communion. So would you pray with me? 
Lord God, you by your spirit have inspired your word. You gave us Leviticus 11 to 15. So now I'm going to ask you in Jesus' name to make it applicable to each of our lives. Bring to our minds how we can say this week to a watching world, I belong to Christ. We pray in his holy name. Amen.